Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that everyone is having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder Program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station, at this same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast or search for the Bridge Builder program on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the Bridge Builder show, we try to bring you great and timely interviews on some of the major questions impacting our public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with a practical way that you can start building the common good brick by brick. In today's episode, we're talking about our cultural moment, the challenges that we're facing as a society. We have flashpoints about monuments and which monuments should stay and go, questions surrounding racism and its continued prevalence in American life. We're going to be speaking with Christine Emba, who writes for The Washington Post and The Economist, about this cultural moment and her work and her experiences and what she's seeing and how the church can respond. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about a bill that would help prevent people from losing their driver's license if they cannot afford to pay tickets. And here in Minnesota, that has had a disproportionate impact on people of color. Finally, and stick around for our bricklayer segment, where we help you find Catholic resources to learn about the impacts of racism through the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and how to bring about ways for our community to heal. We're now joined on the line by Christine Emba. Christine is a columnist for the Washington Post, where she focuses her writing on ideas and society. She also writes for the Economist Intelligence Unit, focusing on technology and innovation. From my perspective, one of her interesting biographical items is that she wrote for the New Criterion, a very fantastic journal of criticism, culture, and art. She was the Hilton Kramer Fellow there. She grew up in Virginia and holds a bachelor's degree in public and international affairs from Princeton University. Christine, welcome to The Bridge Builder. Thanks so much for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and what steered you toward writing and journalism generally. Sure. My path to journalism was actually a bit of a winding one. When I was in college, I went to Princeton. I studied public and international affairs. I was really interested in the United Nations, NGO work, that sort of thing. In college, actually, I converted to Catholicism in my senior year. And I actually think that that was a bit of a driving factor. I became more interested in ideas um, and how the ideas that we have, our moral ideas, our ethical ideas, the way that we think about how we should live our life and organize our society, you know, then goes on to affect our society and how better to share kind of the correct ideas almost to give those a wider audience and to help people understand them. So I worked in consulting for a short period and then realized that, you know, I cared more about writing and editing. And so from there, I moved to The Economist. And then, as you mentioned, I was a fellow at The New Criterion, which was a great experience, allowing me to do hands-on work in a magazine. And then was hired at The Washington Post about five years ago, which seems crazy. But I've been there ever since. Outstanding. And your work is very fine. I've been following it for a number of years now. Uh, Christine, what do you? How would you describe the vocation of a journalist and a Catholic journalist in particular? I think the vocation of a journalist. I think the purpose of journalism is to bring truth to light, truth about what's happening around us, whether it's 
just facts about what's going on in our cities or larger questions, what's happening in politics, what's happening in our world. As a Catholic journalist, I think I share kind of exactly that vocation of bringing the truth to light. But my faith also makes me want to make sure that the truth is presented in a way that people can apprehend and that the ideas that are brought to the table to discuss, or at least the ideas that I bring to the table to discuss, reflect sort of human dignity and the organization of our society towards the common good. And I try to give people tools to think about that, information that can help them shape the way that they live and act. Well, that's a beautiful description of uh, the role of the journalist and seeing it as someone who's trying to bring greater understanding, bringing out uh, the truth. And certainly that mirrors the statements of the popes, especially Pope Francis, on journalism and its role today. People, Christine, seem to distrust traditional media, however, and and traditional media in many instances have done that to themselves. It's almost as though many of your colleagues in the profession uh, find it irresistible to shape the narrative and to shape uh, the facts as they seem fit. How is it that Catholics can inform themselves about important issues and at the same time recommend the limits of journalism that, you know, inevitably we're all shaped by our biases and perspectives? So how should Catholics think about their consumption of media and, you know, recognize that all journalism in some level brings a degree of bias and that's unavoidable. But how can we be good consumers of media? Sure. Well, I think that actually what you said is a, uh, it's a really strong and important realization. Um, we are all shaped by bias. We all bring certain assumptions to the table. That said, I think that there can be a bias against the media that is not particularly well-founded. And I actually think that much of that is due to the polarization of our time. The idea that journalists and the media are either working for someone or against someone, that they're behind a certain candidate or behind some various other movements in society that's actually usually not the case. I feel like I, I always want to tell people who complain about you know, the media doing this or that, that, you know, I work in the media. I've worked in the media kind of on the right, and I've worked in places that people would consider to be the left. And I can say that most journalists who I know, all the journalists that I know, generally did enter the field for similar reasons. They are interested in the truth. They want to get the truth out there. They're trying to do good. And I think also that media literacy very simply, it's helpful to both Catholics and anyone who's trying to be a wise consumer of the news. When you talk about bias in newspapers or bias in television, um, we also have to remember, you know, what different news sources represent, right? You know, I work at the Washington Post. The Washington Post is not a monolith. There is an opinion section, which I work in, and there people present their opinions based on the facts that they have. But there's also the news side, and the news side is actually dedicated to presenting the facts as clearly as possible with as little bias as they can. That is, in fact, the work that they do. There's not really a nefarious agenda behind either side of the paper. But you can also look at where you're consuming news from. So generally, though there's discussion in actually very opinion-centric outlets like Fox News or even MSNBC, cable channels, which, you know, do in fact make money on advertising and conflict, you know that all news is biased. 
But there is a difference between news reported by journalists who are trained in reporting, who go out and talk to people who rely on data, and news that you see floating around on Facebook or on social media from unidentified sources. That could be rumor or even worse. So it's important to actually check the reliability of your sources as well. I tend to suggest that people try and look for the good and not necessarily to trust everything that they read, but go into reading the news and reading media with a sense of openness, a willingness to see both sides and to note that perhaps their biases may be wrong and that their ideas of what is true or what is right may not, in fact, be confirmed by the data and reporting uh, behind it. It's dangerous to only look for news that supports your point of view or that agrees with you. When you're only reading news that agrees with you, uh, that means that you're missing something because the world doesn't always agree with you and the world doesn't always agree with your preferences. And you should be able to see and note and in some ways look for that conflict to inform yourself. For our listeners who are just turning in, we're speaking with Christine Emba. She is a journalist who writes for The Washington Post. Christine, one of the major pieces you've written recently was on the question of monuments, and especially those monuments that are or are perceived to be emblematic of an ideology of white supremacy. Uh, It seems now that not even Lincoln or Frederick Douglass, as we saw recently, are safe from this uh, monument iconoclasm. With all the important issues that we're facing right now, I think people are kind of perplexed as to why so much ink is being spilled on monuments and discussions around monuments and why there are so many passions around them. In writing that story and putting that together, what is your experience of, you know, why these monuments and discussions around monuments that in many cases have been there for decades? We had a Columbus monument that was there since 1931 get torn down recently. What's going on here from your perspective? Why are the monuments a flashpoint and what does it say about this particular cultural moment we're in? Sure. Well, first, a quick note. There actually has not necessarily been that much debate about Lincoln and Lincoln monuments. And this is something that I've actually noticed happening in the media, and I think I tweeted about yesterday. I do think that some of these monuments and some of this discussion is being blown out of proportion by sources, unfortunately, including our president, who would like to use it as sort of a dividing issue to inflame people's passions. And I think the Lincoln question is one of them. I think Fred, the Frederick Douglass monument that was mysteriously torn down, I think police are still actually looking into that because, you know, it was torn down on the anniversary of Frederick Douglass's speech about black Americans after the 4th of July. And that may have actually been the work of right-wing groups, not necessarily liberal iconoclasts. But to that point, I think that monuments have become a flashpoint in this moment because as the country has become far more, I think, aware of and, you know, trying to reckon with our past, a past that includes racism, segregation, and slavery, people do want to take a closer look at those figures who we are, in effect, celebrating by having monuments of them raised in our towns and city squares. When you elevate a figure to a pedestal, It means that you think that they're a good representative of who you are. (laughs) And, you know, people are now questioning, should Confederate generals say, who fought to preserve the institution of slavery in the United States, be, you know, the largest and best representation of who we are? Is that who we should be holding up in our cities and town squares? 
I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which is famous as the former capital of the Confederacy and famous in this time in this monuments debate for its Monument Avenue, uh, which is a wide tree-lined street down the center of the city that is lined with Confederate generals, you know, beginning with Stonewall Jackson and ending with Jefferson Davis, and including a large and very famous statue of General Robert E. Lee. Several of those monuments actually came down this past week uh, after a wave of protests. And I think a realization from many in the city and the city's leadership that, you know, Richmond, Virginia is not necessarily well represented by uh, Confederate generals who would have, in fact, subjugated the black citizenry of the city and, in fact, you know, fought for that segregation and fought for slavery. That's not who the city wants to be anymore. That's not who they want to celebrate. And I think that's actually a wise uh, realization. And the fact that that discussion is now happening, that we can look at ourselves and our past with somewhat clearer eyes is helpful. It doesn't mean that we reject everything that we learned from the past or that we immediately condemn every figure in history who has done something we disagree with to a dustbin and never speak their name again. But it does mean that we try and look holistically at these figures from history and look at what there is to celebrate and also what there is that we should not be celebrating and weigh things accordingly. Christine, that's really well said. And you highlight the idea that some of these discussions around monuments speak to questions of identity. Who are we? And that's why in in a world of identity politics, perhaps that's why they've become such important flashpoints. I mentioned Lincoln earlier because for many Native Americans, at least here in Minnesota, Lincoln, because he ordered the execution of Native Americans during the Dakota War here in 1862 remains somewhat of a controversial figure. We had a state legislator say that she didn't like the portrait of Lincoln that hangs behind the speaker's podium in our house. So Lincoln here, at least in Minnesota, represents a little bit more of a flashpoint. But the reason I mention that, though, is to say, how do we distinguish between Confederate generals and Lincoln, who still to some causes offense? Are there fora that you've seen in your reporting or in your investigation that we can create spaces for discussions around these things where we can make reasonable distinctions between Confederate generals as not representing the best of who we are and can be reasonably removed to Lincoln and perhaps uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Frederick Douglass. How do we productively as a community adjudicate differences? And some, although some people might be offended by a particular representative or someone on a pedestal, it doesn't mean they should be taken down. How do we adjudicate those differences in our society? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're, frankly, still figuring that out. Adjudication, I think, is actually the the perfect word for it. I think that communities have to come together and examine their history, um, not just from one viewpoint or from the viewpoint of the winners or a viewpoint of people of a certain race and background, but from a number of different perspectives. You know, there are many figures that I can think of that I, I have mixed feelings about. And I think that one line of judgment that can be reliable is also to think of all the things that a figure brought to the table, of all the things that they are famous for, that we celebrate them for. What sticks out? Like, what is the most important accomplishment of this person, the thing that we associate them with that we are celebrating? And I think the Confederate general question, when you look at it that way, is actually very easy. You know, a figure like Jefferson Davis He was the president of the Confederacy. That's 
kind of all he was famous for. <laughs> the Confederacy and its defense of slavery is not something to celebrate. If that's his main contribution to society, there is really no reason to be celebrating that. Um, but then there are figures like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, who are much more complicated. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, you know, had children and sexually assaulted his slaves. He was also one of the founding fathers of our country uh, and helped write the Declaration of Independence. What is the thing that we associate with him with the most? What is his biggest contribution to our society? Abraham Lincoln, similarly, you know, he was, in fact, not actually particularly against segregation or even slavery. His fight was to preserve the Union. And unfortunately, slavery did not allow that. But he was not uh, necessarily an enlightened man by the principles of our time today. But in fact, his major accomplishments, you know, were the Emancipation Proclamation, being the president of the United States. Do those outweigh some of the other beliefs or actions at the time? And this is a hard decision. I think different people will fall in different places and come to different conclusions. But as I said before, I think we have to try and look at the holistic figure and weigh their contributions and what they're famous for and what, in fact, they are being celebrated for. So another question or another note about the Confederate statuary is that many of those statues were erected after the Civil War, several decades after the Civil War, to reinforce the ideology of Jim Crow and as a repudiation of Reconstruction. So they were not even you know, necessarily memorials to those specific people. They were explicitly erected to put Black people in this country in their place and make them feel uncomfortable in these public spaces. That's what those memorials were celebrating, and that's what they were for. A statue of Abraham Lincoln was probably not erected for that purpose. A statue of Thomas Jefferson was probably not erected for the purpose of subjugating and demoralizing a segment of society. So we can also look at the reasons that statues were put up and why they still stand. But again, you just have to try and take many factors into account and also many perspectives. So both looking at the history behind these figures and behind the statues from multiple points of view, um, and also the feelings that they elicit in our friends, our family, our community, because the people who live here now are, in fact, the closest to us, and their thoughts and feelings and opinions should be respected and brought to bear. Context is key, it seems, Christine, in some of these discussions. And thanks for unpacking that so well for us. Hopefully we can have rational discussions about these things and make critical distinctions and bring people to the table as we continue to evaluate how we identify ourselves in these monument discussions. Just switching gears a little bit, we got time for one or maybe two more questions. You are a Catholic interested in ideas, society, and culture. You're also African-American. Share a little bit, if you would, about your experience of this particular moment in American life as we continue, it seems, in an ongoing way to struggle with the original sin of racism, its lingering effects, and the resentment and alienation it's created and the conflicts it's created. What is your experience of this moment? Are there signs of hope? Are there, is it discouraging to you? What, what do you see as we struggle with the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and everything that has transpired since Memorial Day? Wow, that's yeah. I know a little. It it sure is, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very complicated moment. Um, It's 
as a journalist um, and working as I do in opinion and in ideas, um, it has been a difficult time, I would say, and that much of my work includes following the news and following what's going on. And there has just been a barrage of horrible videos and images, whether it's of the police killing of George Floyd and, you know, watching a man die for almost nine minutes or of police assaulting protesters or of my white countrymen in some cases pushing back and saying that, you know, black lives don't matter or that all lives matter as a repudiation of black lives matter, which I should note because there's always confusion on this topic. Um, the statement Black Lives Matter has never been a statement, you know, only Black Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter more than any other life. It's simply a statement that in the past, you know, and in fact, in the present, we have often been made to feel that our lives don't matter as much, that Black lives are more disposable, that it's more okay for police to assault Black people and end Black lives. Uh, and it's assertion in that Black lives do matter, not that other lives don't. But at the same time, and after watching all of these events and being so disheartened and discouraged by some of them, seeing the protests does actually give me reason for hope. Seeing the number of people, black, white, of all races, colors, creeds, ages, taking part in these protests and you know recognizing and attempting to recognize the human dignity of those around them, you know, over a long span of time. Um, not just one day or one social media blackout, but over weeks, does give me a sense that maybe change is taking place and that, you know, persistent change could be happening. If you look at, in fact, polling, the change in the number of people, the, the number of Americans to acknowledge that, you know, racism still exists, that structural racism is real, uh, that maybe police brutality is actually a problem has risen precipitously over the past month. Uh, it's been a larger change than we've seen over the past five years and just less than a month. And, you know, that does make me hopeful that America's eyes are on some level being opened and that people are more open to, you know, hearing from those not like them and taking their voices and words and in many cases pain into account. Christine, just one more question, and we just got a brief moment. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm grateful for your openness and willing to share that with us, so thank you. But how does the Church speak into this moment? From your from your standpoint, where do you see the Church gaining its voice or being a, a part of this public conversation, perhaps? You know, the secularism, the decline of Christianity in this country, we're not a part of the main part of this public conversation. So how does the Church, from your perspective, speak effectively into this moment to bring about reconciliation, healing, justice? What are you expecting from the Church right now? I mean, church leaders have said for for years, for decades even, that racism is a sin. It is a sin in the eyes of God. It's a denial of the human dignity and the imprint of God on, you know, everyone, on the people around us, uh, and that we need to reject racism firmly. That said, you know, I would love to see church leaders and also, you know, just people in the church, fellow Catholics, um, take this to heart, you know, and realize that racism is a pro-life issue in some cases, as much as, you know, abortion is a pro-life issue. Caring for 
our fellow members of society, people of color, people who are marginalized, people who are not given opportunity, is as much of a pro-life issue, is as important an issue, is as key an area of justice as any of the other areas of justice that Catholics are called to pursue. And I think we also have to recognize, and the Church has you know, pointed this out in the many statements and bishops' uh, letters that have been published, but you know, we maybe still don't hear it in, in our homilies when we're sitting in the pews, that it's not enough to just assume that it's a relational problem, that to end racism or overcome the sin of racism in our society that it's enough to say have a black friend or you know be nice to people of color who you see on the street. Real justice involves changing the systems that allow racism to thrive. They involve political action that involves going out into the community in a larger way and witnessing and showing that the love of God matters and is available to your neighbors, yes, but also to the country and to the world at large. So I I would like to see the church urging people to do more, to step out of their comfort zone, to realize that this is as important an issue as any of the other issues that Catholics talk about far more loudly and more commonly. This is the time to do it. We've been blessed today to speak with Christine Emba. She is a writer for The Washington Post on ideas, society, culture. We've spoken with her about the vocation of a journalist, her work with The Washington Post and other media outlets, how to consume journalism in a good way, in a thoughtful way, at the same time the ongoing struggles with monuments and racism today. Christine, thanks so much for joining the Bridge Builder Program. It's been a blessing to speak with you. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. We're back with our mailbag segment. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and you're listening to the Bridge Builder Program. We wanted to let that prior conversation with Christine Emba, a writer and journalist for The Washington Post, to go on because it was just uh, outstanding, timely, and relevant. So I want to focus uh, two things that are, I think are great uh, ways to piggyback off that conversation in our mailbag and in our bricklayer. But Kit, uh, why don't you share a little bit about that question in our mailbag? Yeah, so the Minnesota Catholic Conference, along with other communities of faith, have joined together to call for the legislature to end driver's license suspensions for unpaid tickets. And one of our Facebook followers simply wanted to know, why are people of faith advocating on this issue? Well, it's it's an issue that impacts persons of color in particular. We call it the criminalization of poverty. It's harm communities of color and created increased exposure to law enforcement and put them at the risk of police violence. And so when we have these unpaid tickets, that creates conflicts with law enforcement, can end up in the suspension of driver's license, prevents people from getting to work. It was part of the matrix of issues that ultimately result in the killing of Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, four years ago. So extensive national data and data from St. Paul show that people of color are stopped at highly disproportionate rates and that communities of color are more likely than whites to have their driver's license suspended for unpaid tickets. So we need to think about, as Christine was saying, ways and structurally in our public policy that create disparate impacts 
on persons of color and think of ways to do something about that. License suspensions for payment-related violations primarily impact people uh, of color with low incomes and little savings. 60% of low-income individuals who lose their license lose their job, leading to escalating debt and financial hardship. Fortunately, there is a piece of legislation that you can support as we head into another special session, HF 1061, authored by John Lesh and Senator Dan Hall in the Senate, a bipartisan piece of legislation to make sure that we can do something to remedy this problem and end the suspension of driver's licenses for unpaid traffic tickets. Again, that bill in the regular session was called HF 1061 and SF 1376. If you call your legislator and tell him or her that you support that, they will know what you are talking about and we'll link it on our show page as well. We've just got a little bit of time for our bricklayer segment and wanted to highlight the resources that are put out by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, particularly their statement, Open Wide Our Hearts, the Enduring Call to Love, a Pastoral Letter Against Racism. You can find more about that and that initiative at usccb.org racism. All kinds of study guides, resources, practical things that you can do. So not just thinking about it, uh, but actually doing something. Again, that website is usccb.org slash racism, where you can learn more about the Open Wide Our Hearts initiative. That's all the time for you have for today. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your questions and new ways for you to build bridges between faith and public life. Remember, if you miss a past episode, you can catch up with us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or look for The Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. We're grateful for you listening today. Hope you found the conversation as edifying as we did. And we'll look forward to joining you again next week with another great speaker, more of your comments and questions, and an outstanding bricklayer segment. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening to The Bridge Builder. God bless your day.